Today on episode number 327, David Rhodes is back, this time to talk misconceptions about HyFlex. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. On today's episode, my friend, my colleague, David Rhodes, is back, this time to talk about misconceptions about HyFlex. David, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We both tend to really like the same music and the same movies and have a lot of references in common. So we're going to play a clip from a movie that, if you've seen it before, might instantly be recognizable. And then we'll explain it for those of you that haven't ever seen this movie before. But it's kind of the theme of today's episode. You got very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So this is, of course, from the movie, The Princess Bride. And at the very end of this clip, it is Inigo Montoya who says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And this is a humorous little bit that takes place throughout the entire movie and is quite amusing. And in our case today, David, we get to apply it to the word high flex. Yep. <laughs> We've heard a lot of uses of the word high flex and very rarely does it mean what you and I have actually come to. I think we have a really good shared understanding of what we mean when we say high flex. And you, of course, have written your dissertation on high flex and know an awful lot, not just about it from your own pedagogy, but looking at other educators and other experts who have been using this approach. And I am mostly still a beginner, but my gosh, am I having fun with it? <laughs> my students are just loving it because if you haven't listened to the show before, I dabbled in it previously, gave some flexibility through HyFlex, but this fall of 2020, I am all in and the students are just loving it. And David, it's working so well. That's awesome to hear. It's great to give more flexibility to the students so they have more ways of, of presenting their learning, of, of you assessing their learning, but gives them even ways when you don't have a situation like COVID happening. So I'm excited to see people messing around with it. And I love I have loved doing it for the past five or six years that I've been uh, experimenting as well. And when we talk about high flex, it is the original definition of high flex having to do with more scheduling and the structure around scheduling. But you also, in your research and in your recommendations, you add in there universal design for learning, culturally responsive teaching, and flipped learning. And am I missing anything that's kind of all encompassing in your, your definition of what a great high flex class is? I think that's mostly the things that I incorporate because, of course, every person that does HyFlex has a unique way of doing it, and they have different learning and management systems and different structure and things like that. But the basic gist of it is to give as much flexibility as possible in the course design so that when you're executing the course or you're facilitating, you're teaching the course, you can choose or the student can choose to go either direction with how they present their present their learning. So. Yeah, it incorporates all of those things, and especially in equivalent online learning assessments and stuff we'll be talking about. 
Yeah. And as a side note, I had every intention on being totally done with my class. And you know, I didn't hit it. Here in the United States, we have a holiday called Labor Day that's coming up. And that's kind of my deadline where I'm pretty sure I'll be able to hit it. I just have to add in those online equivalent assignments. And what I can say is that they're not as hard as I first made them out to be. And you shared this with me too, that just the once I get kind of in a rhythm, I can really do it pretty fast, including yesterday when I realized I hadn't, <laughs> I had put a placeholder. It's always dangerous when you put a placeholder and it's in your LMS and not captured somewhere else, because sure enough, I went there and it just said to be determined. And I'm like, oh no, because I already had the next two weeks. So I just must have mis- mis- misrealized. That's not a word, but we're going to go with it. And But it was quick. It was pretty quick for me to be able to capture that. And and so, yeah, and especially the parallels. But we have five misconceptions about high flex that we're finding. I know you've done a lot of speaking lately, David, and, you know, through questions I get through the podcast and also at our institution. Our institution is perfect. No one would ever have misconceptions about anything, but just in our imagination, if anyone did have theoretically, just just hypothetically, Mm -hmm. you know, not at our institution, but just somewhere else that um, some of these misconceptions that are coming up. So we're going to go through them and you're going to help us kind of arrive at a different option. So if this is the misconception, what would be a better conception to have about HyFlex to replace it with? So the first one is a common misconception is that having in person classes joined by people that are zooming in or some sort of web conferencing in. So I've got some people who are there in a classroom environment. And then I've also presumably got a computer somewhere in that classroom environment that has some kind of webcam either built into it or a separate thing in the classroom. And that that the in person classroom experience plus web conference live is high flex. That's what when they say, that's not what you mean. And then we say, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So talk a little bit about this misconception and what you wish it could be replaced with. For sure. Let's start with, I mean, the definition of high flex, we discussed this in a previous episode, but high flex means hybrid flexible. So it, within that, it does not equal a certain technology. Uh, you must do videos here. You might like, it's not, there's not a formula in this, in, in that same sense. So yes, there could possibly be a high flex course that had a face-to-face course with a live zoom streaming session at the exact same time. But that is one of many, 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 many options. It doesn't equal high flex. So let's take the challenge that all of us have faced with zoom. Let's say if it's just zoom with our meetings, the technology problems that we've experienced, you multiply that times a thousand inside of a live classroom on top of a professor trying to, potentially without a TA, without a person helping them do that, be able to moderate the stuff that's going online, to be able to to have discussion with the students and things like that. There's a potential for the students to have problems with internet connection at that time in live. There's a potential for the professor to have problems at being live. And it's definitely going to be a problem trying to figure out how I'm going to focus on the people in front of me and the people online at the exact same time. It is possible to be done well. It is improbable that it would be done well. And that's why we have encouraged people at our institution to not go that direction. There's a multitude of reasons, but this is one of the main reasons. Technology problems that if it can occur, it will occur. It's what's going to happen. So we would definitely say that is one option for HyFlex. It is one of the most technologically challenging 
versions of high flex that you could possibly be doing there. I believe there's better ways to be able to do things, especially how we explore pedagogy in addition to just these technical challenges. And I'm going to separate times of pandemic and just leave that aside. I think we would still be saying the same thing, even if we weren't having to wear masks and shields and all kinds of plexiglass. I've seen so many humorous plexiglass. It's just, I forgot the hashtag that's being used for these things. But I mean, that just compounds the issue. But just like an artist, in art, you learn the rules and then you break them. It's not like we would never say this. And you said that. I think there would be some cases where I would have a guest speaker where I would want to allow people to be able to join via Zoom It wouldn't really be the same thing if they watched it later. You know, it'd be kind of fun that they could have questions. But in general, I'm going to have that backbone of online equivalent assignments that people can participate in. And it'll be a different experience, but it'll meet the same learning goals. And it'll meet someone for whom joining asynchronously is a better option for them on that given week or for the entire class. For sure. The second misconception is having in-person classes or Zoom classes or web conference classes recorded and posted for those who couldn't join. So they couldn't be there when our class met. So I'm just going to record it and then I'm going to post it on a video service and they're going to watch it later. And that is the definition of HyFlex. That is definitely another option to be able to, to, it is a type of HyFlex I do not believe it's an effective type of high flex. And this is the main reason why when you are recording a session and especially let's say if you record a lecture asynchronously, you record it and you post it for them to watch, you know, the quality you can, you can handle that quality and make sure that it is good sound and good video and good content. You don't have control of that within the classroom necessarily, but especially if you add active learning, which of course we would recommend to have, have happen within the classroom, you add that basically students from the outside watching a recorded Zoom session would be looking at people participating in discussion and active learning, and they'd be sitting and watching it from the outside. And they're not really participating. Yes, you could attach a discussion to it or a quiz to it or things like that, but it wouldn't be as active as what is happening within the classroom. And what HyFlex at its best should do for the student is to give equivalent learning experiences for the students. So if you have the discussion happening in the live session, let that happen in the live session, just like it would normally without filming it, without recording it. And then you can try to, you're not recreating it exactly. You're just saying, what are my learning objectives? How can I do this well in in an asynchronous environment so that students can participate in that? So this misconception, it is a version of HyFlex to be able to do that, to record it and to post it. It is not a recommended version of HyFlex to do. And there are schools, there are courses that do this, but we believe that there's better ways to do it. And that includes some of these asynchronous options. Just like my example on the last misconception, you can break this rule. So I go back to guest speakers. Maybe it's that that guest speaker, you can only get it that one time. One of our colleagues teaches an action sports marketing class is very well connected in the industry. He gets founders of companies that students just admire so much. And even for the ones who can't join to get to even see a video of someone who cared enough to come to our school, which is 
a wonderful school, but not, you know, not as well known as Harvard, for example. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so that's, that's a neat thing for them to get to see. So we know the rules and then we can break them when appropriate. I do want to share that one of my favorite Socratic educators, meaning someone who just asks questions as a means for educating is Michael Sandel. And he has a wonderful video series, which I'll link to in the show notes in case any of you have not had a chance to watch it. But you see it, and it's at the time when he recorded it, it was among Harvard's most popular classes. The class is called Justice, and it's basically a class about ethics. What's the right thing to do, and what are the different ethical paradigms and frameworks you might have and all that? And he makes it look so easy. He's up on a stage. His PowerPoints are very simple, and he doesn't rely on them too much. But if it's a a name he wants us to remember or a concept, he'll just have one slide, and then it goes away. There's approximately 800 or so people in the room in just a giant, gorgeous lecture hall. And he very seamlessly asks questions, and you literally feel like, and they probably have, I don't know, you've seen these, right, David? Yeah, for sure. They probably have like 10 cameras in there. I mean, would that be a guess of... That's a 10 camera shot or something like that. Multiple microphones, multiple cameras. Yep. Oh yeah. And so you get the perfect shot of the person asking the question and then the perfect shot of his and every sound, every odd audio is just (laughs) absolutely Mm -hmm. perfect. So they have access to a tremendous amount of video production resources to make that possible. But the, that's usually where people stop. But they also take what was a four-hour class, and it gets edited down to 40 minutes approximately. Mm -hmm. So if you're not planning on doing that with your recorded lecture slash if there's active learning or whatever, it's probably not going to be a very enjoyable experience. And so I just had class yesterday, and I was able to use, I had my husband Dave record a series of videos where I'm teaching One of the books I'm teaching this semester is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So Dave has a way to teach people to memorize the seven habits. And you just say habit two, and they can say it, or you say which one's sharpen the saw, and they say that's habit seven. And so it's a whole exercise of using what are called peg words to memorize a list of anything, in this case, a list of habits. So as you can imagine, it takes a little while to go through those things. So there's a two-minute video, talks about memory. I can show that two minute video in my class live and then be there to kind of clarify and ask them some questions. But I could use that same clip in the asynchronous and then ask them some questions and there and ask them to comment. I ask them to the service we use is within Canvas. It's Canvas Studio and they can put little comments. So I said, you know, put a comment on the part that really stood out to you or which habit. Do you feel like you have down now? Which one are you still struggling with a little bit? So that's that, uh, not the same but a similar experience as they would have had, but I did not record us. It is not fun to watch other people for the most part, to watch them like that's, it was designed for that time, that context, not for someone to be watching it later on. And most of the time it's nowhere near as effective. The third common misconception is that 100% high flex flexibility is good 100% of the time, as in any class that we ever might teach at any level in any college program, undergraduate, graduate, et cetera, that they all would be equally well served if it was just whenever you want to show up, great. And whenever you want to do the asynchronous, great. Is that a misconception? The way that I would answer that kind of comes down to design versus execution. So in the design, 
I would answer yes. If you were to only ask the question about design, should every course be designed with that flexibility as a high flex course? Yes. Should every course be executed or facilitated as a high flex class with 100% flexibility for every student at all times they can choose where that's not necessarily healthy, not necessarily right for certain types of students, certain types of classes. So let's take, for instance, you have freshmen entering from high school into the initial classes that they're taking. If you were to give them the 100% freedom to choose from week to week or session to session to be online or on ground, they could potentially, and you as faculty members and people that have experience in this would probably have noticed that the more freedom you give, the potential for trouble or skipping out on classes and stuff could potentially happen. So that's just one instance of this may not be wise to do that. But at the same time, you have different maturity levels of students. You have different types of classes that you need more time with them in the live session and not be an option in general. But it should be an option for those people that cannot make it. You don't necessarily have to leave it open for students to be able to choose from week to week. But let's say something happens during that week. You have that flexibility built in so the student can, can come to you, email you, contact you somehow and go, this is what's happening right now. I, I need to be able to, to skip this. And you go, okay, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you're able to do that because it's in the, in the design. But most definitely, you do not want to just, li let's say if we wanted to switch our school to, from today to tomorrow to 100% high flex and just leave it wide open, we know what would happen. Research-wise, in general, from our experience in teaching, we know that that would be a, a disaster. But at the same time, you could potentially even say you have less freedom in the beginning because it's designed that way and more freedom toward the end of the class, even within the same maturity level, student level, age level, whatever the case may be. And that could be done in any case as professors are testing this out and trying to figure out, is this going to be a benefit? If it's not a benefit for the student, which in the majority case it is, if it's used well, if it's not going to be a benefit, then do not give them the 100% freedom. But the class itself allows that to happen. I'm not going to go into any specifics because this involves someone's privacy and their own story to tell, but I do want to admit that I have a bias that I know I need to try to get rid of, but I think the first way we get rid of biases is by admitting we have them. So I have a little bit of a bias that I struggle with, and that is that students who don't really even dive in until the second week of classes during a traditional 16-week class, I tend to project a lot onto them. And yesterday was just confronted with, there's an absolute reason why someone would not have dived right in. And it was just, it, it's, I mentioned this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People that we're reading in this class. And if, for those of you who haven't heard this story from Stephen Covey, he talks about being on a subway and being so ticked off at this guy who comes in, he's got his kids with them and the kids are all rambunctious and like bouncing on the seats and not only disturbing him, but disturbing other people on the subway. And he's just completely like, what is your deal? So that, that's not the way Stephen Covey spoke, but that's my interpretation of Stephen Covey. So he says to the man, you know, you really should keep your kids. I don't remember exactly how he writes it, but keep your kids together a little bit. You should, they should behave a little bit better. And, and that guy says, yeah, yeah, I know. I really should. Their mom just died last week. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard for me to really Focus navigate any of this right now. I mean, it's like, you, 
You hear a story like that of a complete paradigm shift, but we all need to be experiencing the possibility of paradigm shifts like that. And for me, it comes up a lot around that. And just this distinction that you made, David, design versus execution, it was already designed so that if somebody doesn't, quote unquote, arrive until week two, it's fine. And so I was able to, without knowing this person's story yet, without knowing that he was quote unquote justified in not, I was still able to say, by the way, the good thing is I, I have these biases. That's not good. The good thing is I am wise enough to not let those things come out of my mouth or into my keyboard as I'm responding to people's emails. So it was like, hey, the water's fine. Welcome. Come on in. I'm so excited you're in this class because those are the things I know I should say. You know, the other baggage I carry is not relevant in that. And of course, you could imagine, David, I was so glad when I heard a little bit of a story. I thought, okay, thank goodness that I can overpower Mm -hmm. my biases in this case. And I really appreciate that it's designed to be able to accommodate that. And I'd also just personally, if I could even set that aside, it was just completely freeing because it, mm-hmm. it, it literally took me no time. It's, yep. It took me no time because, I mean, it's already built. It, uh, that'll be like a tiny bit of grading, a tiny bit of grading that I would have done anyway. <laughs> so it was just, it really, really was nice. Yep. And students will feel cared for in, even in the design, even with, let's say if you design and then show them, okay, this is why I designed the way I designed. I designed for your success. I didn't design, as you can see, I didn't design for making it easier on me as a faculty member. I'm designing it for you because I know you are a human being, just like I am a human being, and something is going to happen, whether that's time management and you, you cause this for yourself or if that's caused from the outside, they will feel loved, cared for, and supported in a way just from this design. And then on top of that, you put your normal reach out. I'm caring for you. I'm, I'm saying putting this into words. So you have design that's caring and you have your words that are caring. And they'll go, these are lining up for me. I know this professor is caring for me and wants the best for me. The other thing that I think about so often is that it's so often this is what we've trained them to do. Even if this particular student didn't have a real life altering event, there's just, we teach them by reading them syllabi at the start of a class and, or, you know, letting the class out after 15 minutes. Cause well, we're not going to do anything today anyway. You know, so it's just, you know, if they've had college classes before, they might have been conditioned to think that there's not really that important that I'm there. Cause the person teaching the class hasn't read James Lang's great guide in the Chronicle about mm-hmm. how to have a great first day of class, which I'll, I'm typing to myself to put that in the show notes. All right. So the fourth misconception, high flex classes are easier for students than quote, regular classes. Easier for students. Easier in the sense of options. Yes. It would be, uh, if that's the word, if that's how it's being defined, but I, I think this may come from if a student was looking from the outside and trying to think, oh, I'm going to go for this high flex class so I can choose the online choice and I can, I, that's going to be easier, literally less work. That is not the case. So if you're if for a high flex class, the backbone of a high flex class is an asynchronous online class. You build a complete asynchronous online class. This class could function completely by itself without any face-to-face instruction. And then you add your face-to-face instruction back on top of that and as an option for those students. So the student is having that misconception, then they need to understand that it's meeting the exact same learning objectives and it's the exact same hours, 
exact same credit, things like that. It's an equivalent an assignment. If a faculty is misunderstanding that in, in seeing, well, this online class is a dumbed down version or an easier version than my real class, which is that traditional face-to-face. And that would also be a misconception because a well-built class pedagogically should be a well-built class, a well-executed class in both modalities or both or a mix of those modalities. So in no way is it easier, and it's most definitely not easier to build. Oh, so, oh yeah. my gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's, it's a lot more work to build. But it, it, in, in the sense of making it easier, yes, it would let stress off students to know that they had the choice, but in, in, in and of itself, the workload is not easier, it's different. So there could be a possibility that a student has an easier time learning in an asynchronous environment than a face-to-face environment or vice versa. That is the only way it could be considered easier. A big distinction that I see doesn't have anything to do with high flex other than correlation. So there would be more high flex classes that would fit into the category I'm about to describe, but not that that's necessarily inherent or shouldn't be. And it has to do with high stakes versus low stakes assignments. So you see more high flex classes being designed to have lots of low stakes assignments, assessments. So we're, and this is, comes out of, it comes out of many places, but one prominent area is Ken Bain's research, what the best college teachers do. And his phrasing of this still rings in my day. You know, we give people the opportunity to fail, try again, fail, try again. And that process, that's learning. But we sort of forget about that sometimes. And we say it's a midterm and it's a final and that's learning. And of course, when we design our classes that way, we are opening up the opportunity for a disproportionate number of students who come from marginalized historically marginalized populations to be at a disadvantage with that structure of assessment. You take the same structure, the same learning outcomes, but you spread them out and you give people more opportunities to fail, get feedback, change, learn, try, I mean, the actual learning process, and you open up the doors to make education accessible to a lot more people same learning goals, same high expectations, but not the stress and discrimination that comes from there's two or three measures of your assessment. If you got a bad day or you just take tests poorly, never learned how to do that, or I mean, (laughs) no other opportunity to demonstrate your learning besides a traditional test, which in so many disciplines is actually not a very good gauge of what it means to quote unquote pursue that discipline. So yep, I mean, I use, sure. I come from business, of course, and that the idea of like, what does it take to run a good business that you take tests? Well, I mean, that's not quite. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's what I see about when they say one's easier versus the other easier for who Yeah. and easier in what way. Yeah. So you mentioned this last one, you started hinting at it a little bit. So this last misconception is that high flex course design requires too much of faculty. And by the way, that's not where the sentence ends. So I think it requires a lot. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's really hard. I will not pretend that it's not. But since this is a, so this is the misconception, this next part, since they have to build three classes in one, I'm hearing this from people. So they have to build this backbone of the asynchronous content that you talked about, David, and I believe so wholeheartedly is the key to high flex. But then we've got to build the in-person and then, well, and then now with the, with the Zoom web conferencing, welcome to pandemic. So this is kind of a mushy thing because 
separated together, I do think high flex classes are harder to build than quote unquote, a normal one. So let's, let's kind of dissect this. What are your thoughts? Like what parts can you pull out as a misconception? And um, at the same time, us both recognizing these are challenging to build. I think the biggest misconception in this particular question or challenge that comes up is that there's more work. There's more work in this high flex class, which there is because you're building it as an asynchronous online class. Plus you're then adding a face-to-face option back on top of it. So it's that additional work, but all classes should have been designed from the beginning with quality assessments, multiple times of engagement, low stakes assignments should have been from the beginning should have been designed this way. And then you'd had to then only then add the option of this face to face back on top of it, or you add the online option back, which could be potentially one assignment per week. Because in the, in the majority of cases, if if you're talking about a traditional class, you have about 40 hours in the seat and you have 80 hours out of the seat. Most of that learning is happening outside of the classroom anyway. So some of the misconception comes from designing classes in such a way that you have, you speak at them and you give them a midterm and a final. And that's it. Of course, it's more work than that. I think that's where the misconception is coming from. But if we were to have designed it well from the beginning, it's, it's a little bit more work up front to add that extra option back in. So most of this extra work is coming from a paradigm shift, a design shift of how they're supposed to design classes in such a way that can function in multiple ways. I just believe it's a well-designed class plus an extra option as, as opposed to it's this whole new different thing. I believe that you are able to, let's say if we're doing program assessment from the outside, the program director or the program chair is looking back and wants to know if they're learning across the program, if they have multiple ways of assessing and and learning and things to look at as far as grades are concerned, you can compare that to another class that's doing it. Maybe they're delivering it a different way. It's easier to be able to compare that and to know that because you have multiple points as opposed to a midterm and a final, how would you even assess that they learned that they either did or didn't according to an F or an A, or whatever the case may be. So I I think going into it, when we're speaking to faculty and encouraging them to build this such a a way, we need to be transparent and say, this is harder than what you usually have done in your build. And and it may be only a little bit harder for some and a lot harder for others. But say, once you are done, you can, through your iterations, through every time you teach this, you can improve it and make it better. And it's going to become better and better and better for you. Because... This is a guarantee. It will become easier for you to teach it once it's built and you tweak it. It'll be harder at the very beginning learning. And did I do this right? Did I give the right instructions? But I would probably say once we shift to designing courses with multiple ways of assessment with just more than this midterm final, it's not much more of a leap to go. But in the majority of cases, a lot of people are on that model of midterm final with a lot of lecture and things like that. It will be a shift. So it's kind of a, it could be a misconception, but it's, it is definitely not a misconception that this is harder, harder to build, takes longer to build. I mean, of course it takes longer to build quality courses than it does to build not quality courses. (laughs) That's where the misconception comes from. It's going to take longer to think about it as opposed to give a bunch of true false questions or multiple choice questions. 
there are things that we can carry with us throughout the way. So once we get into a rhythm and cause you would want there to be, it's this paradox. You want there to be in your research, your dissertation research bears this out a structure. So I'm not spending tons of time figuring out where I'm supposed to be. What's, what am I supposed to do when, how is this organized? So a real clean cadence when Maria Anderson was on, she talked about every week has ex- learn, explore, apply. And so, you know, you're going to show up for that week and there's going to be those three things and it's all really predictable, but then there's the delight and surprise within the familiar structure. And we, if we have one without the other or the other with, I've done the surprise without, (laughs) without the structure before, not a great experience always if they're confused about where they're supposed to show up and what that looks like to submit, whatever that is. So there are a couple of things that I've learned along the way through former podcast guests. I'm thinking about Laura Gibbs She has her students do a lot of blogging. And so she's one of the people who subscribes to what is called ungrading. So she wants to put the grading off to the side and focus her efforts on feedback. One of the things she has her students do in the grade book is submit their blog post, a link to it, and declare things about it. I wrote a blog post about X topic. It was X words long. I used an alt tag for my image to make it accessible. She has them declare those things. It's a self-graded quiz such that then all she's dealing with are the exceptions. Did the student forget to do the alt tag on the image? She deals with that. Oh, I forgot or I didn't know how. And maybe it's early in the class and she just sends them a quick email. Hey, just a reminder, you got to do this. That worked really nicely for me in this class because it's the seven habits also getting things done. And so there are, there's terminology. There's definitely things you can have in quizzes that it either was that habit or it's not. It was one of the three things or the not. Like there's, there's fact-based questions because I'm helping them build a vocabulary, but there's also a lot of metacognition because they're building then once they understand the language, they're building their own set of a mission, vision, values as it relates to the seven habits. So I can have them declare in this case, a Padlet, I had them, we did a vision for the class when it is December, 2020, what do they want to be able to say about this class? And so I had five or so categories. Did they include images on all the categories? Did they include titles, subtitles? Did they include their name? Cause it didn't automatically pull their name, et cetera. That really made things easy for me. Now, Mm -hmm. did I double, triple check that every single student didn't? No, no. It's it's good enough for me that those declarations got me far enough. I did spot checking, and I think that can be useful. Michelle Miller, when she was on the podcast, her first visit, talked about that as well, kind of spot checking more, even in her case, assessing for knowledge, that she feels like it's better to have the repetition than it is to have, you know, just this massive chunk of grading. So those are the couple things that come up for me. Before we get to the recommendations segment for today's show, I wanted to thank today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. If you head over to SaneBox.com T-I-H-E, you'll get a good taste of what SaneBox is all about and also get a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. SaneBox is an essential tool for me when thinking through all of the emails that come flying at me. It's a very intelligent service and it looks at the subject lines of your emails and learns from them as to whether or not they should remain in your inbox or whether they should be sorted off into different kinds of folders. A common one is 
sane later, as in it automatically sorts things that I don't need to be looking at during the main part of my day where I really need to be focused on the most important things. It sorts it off to that sane later, or it also allows you to set up really smart reminders. So if I email someone and I want to be reminded if they don't get back to me within X period of days, I can have a special SaneBox email address that I send that to, and that reminder just happens automatically. I also can snooze emails, which I don't do a ton, but every once in a while, I just, I want this to come back on a Monday morning. I don't want to deal with it now. And it's just a nice way to sort of clear out the things that really need to be focused on, on a Friday afternoon, for example, and be able to have the rest of it be sorted out And it doesn't really get things wrong for me, but if it ever does, I mean, literally I've been using it for years now. And if it ever does, I can just drag the email from the folder that it sorted it into, into where I want it to wind up. There's occasionally times where it'll sort something into saying later. And I really do want to be notified of it a little bit earlier on than that. So I encourage you to head on over to sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E to find out about the trial, the free trial you can do as well as a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. And I want to thank SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode. And this is the time actually when we get to give our recommendations. And I have a recommendation that feels really special to me because I felt like I was cared for in a really powerful way. I aired an episode about mental health a while back, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes in case anyone didn't have a chance to listen, because I really thought it was an important episode with really good things for us to know. During that episode, I shared about the stress that I felt when COVID first arrived and the physical presence of that stress and the tightening and the pain in my chest. And I asked for permission to share his message. This is Joe Murphy talking in the teaching and higher ed Slack channel. And again, I have his permission to share this because it's personal. It feels personal to me because I feel like he cared about me and the listeners of the show, but also he shares some of his own story. So he says he feels a little bit like this is probably I'm reading his words, a personal overreaction, but here goes. I had five stents installed in my heart back in October, so it kind of scared me when Bonnie talked about chest pain. And yes, it is normal that all of us feel that chest tightness that comes from stress. I've had it myself these last three months, and it's pretty clearly different from my cardiac event. But please, 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 everyone, check out the symptoms of cardiac trouble including the fact that it is not always left side pain and take chest pain seriously, by which I mean talk to a doctor. So I just want to thank Joe so much for sharing that with me. I felt really cared for when you when you shared that. And thank you for giving me permission to pass it on to the rest of the community because that was something that never occurred to me and is just such an important reminder to all of us. So thank you for helping care for all of us, all of our health, Joe. And I'm going to pass it over to you, David, for your recommendation. Excellent. I want to kind of want to set up my recommendation because and without much detail about exactly how I design HyFlex specifically, in general, it's based on a flipped model in the sense of trying to push lecture back into the asynchronous online environment and try to push practice and application into the Zoom session if you have a live, a live session. So you have before class, in class, and post class work. And the reason I bring that up is because the recommendation that I have, there's kind of two out of this. The book Flipped Learning by Robert Talbert 
with a forward from John Bergman is an excellent way to kind of get an understanding of what flipped is. And once you learn that, if you don't understand it, there's a great resource to be able to look at. You can use that and to be able to put that into HyFlex and, and see the things as pre-class, in-class, post-class, even if it's 100% asynchronous online class. And it would help you shift your lecture back into the pre-work area. And then on top of that, as I mentioned, John Bergman does the forward. He's the, the head of what's called Flip Learning Global. Uh, it is a, a community. It's an organization that helps people learn how to do flipped learning in their different types of classes, whether that be K-12 through a college, university, master's level, whatever the case may be. But it has training and resources. A lot of the stuff is for free. And then they also have some certification programs that have been hugely helpful for me as I went through those certifications as I was building the HyFlex courses to then do my study within my dissertation research on. I was able to make those improvements before messing up and making those mistakes. And of course, I still make mistakes, but I'm learning from others and I'm using a community like uh, Flip Learning Global and that certification and then bouncing ideas off of people, including listening to Robert Talbert and different articles and things like that. Anything from Robert Talbert is amazing, but specifically Flip Learning by Robert Talbert, the book uh, with the forward for John Berkman and flglobal.org is where you would find the Flip Learning Global resources. I concur on the anything by Robert Talbert's amazing. He's been documenting as he builds his fall courses and from start to finish, just very transparent and so revealing. And yeah, it's been absolutely a delight to get to learn from him continually. He wrote the forward for my book and I cried when I read it the first time because he just so spoke into words what I had been trying to do with that book. So yeah, he's just such a such a great person and so much we can learn from him. Well, David, I want to thank you formally for coming back on Teaching in Higher Ed. And I just continue to learn from you all the time. And you're just such a great colleague and a great friend. I'm, I consider it an absolute joy to get to work with you. It's excellent to work with you as well. It's cool to be able to bounce ideas, to have pushback. And I, I push back and you can push back and have that kind of relationship that we're making each other better. And I think that's what like this podcast has done for me as a listener in addition to all the resources and things that kind of come out of that, I need to be learning from other people and hopefully somebody can learn stuff from me and, and, and vice versa. That's what makes a learning community. I was listening to Seth Godin's podcast. I, I don't have the episode to put in the show notes, but he was talking about difficult conversations versus direct conversations and that we spend so much time as human beings trying to figure out the difficult ones, but we don't, we don't just like you and I are very direct with each other. I don't really feel like we have really difficult conversations. We have very direct ones. Just It's just natural. There's no other way I would know to relate to you. And it's not like either one of us. It's it's actually lives up to the, the premise of this whole show is that teaching is both an art and a science. And so we do want to keep learning from each other. And I highly regard the research that you've done and can can say you know so much more about that. But I also feel the equal respect back from you that I bring some knowledge and expertise to the table too. So what a delight to get to be like, we don't always think the same way. Would you want us to? It's really, really, it'd be super boring. And like you said, we would never continue to learn from each other. It's just so fun. Yeah. It's hard to describe to other people because I think so many times people don't have that in their workplaces. For sure. This is where we play the theme music and usually the guest is gone by now, but David's still here. (laughs) 
Hi, David. Hello. <laughs> and uh, the show notes are going to be over at teachinginhighered.com slash 327, as in episode 327. If you want to go check out the recommendations links to Robert Talbert's work and the Flipped Learning Global and Joe Murphy's advice that we should be watching our physical symptoms carefully and seeing a doctor when we are experiencing symptoms such as the ones I mentioned on that episode, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 327. I'll also put a link in there to the last episode that David was on about high flex. So if you've not been listening for a while, that would be a great one to go back and revisit. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.